We're uh, going to be continuing our series on the Beatitudes, which is uh, just a really fancy word for uh, phrases about blessing. Uh, we've, we're doing this series because we spent a lot of time earlier this year talking about how Jesus is the good news for every aspect of life, every part of our culture, every thing that fills our minds, and then now we're asking the question, if that's the truth about who Jesus is, if that's the truth about even this moment where we find ourselves, uh, how should we be? Like, who should we be? How should we live there? Uh, I think there's a a rush to say, uh, what do we say? But before we talk about what we should say to the world, uh, I want us to spend time thinking about who we should actually be and, and, and how we should live. Uh, how do we live lives as if Jesus changes everything? And so that's what we're, we're doing with the Beatitudes. And, and I'm going to read uh, the first three this morning. Uh, and then we'll continue on from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These words don't sound like world-changing influence. Uh, These words actually probably don't uh, sound like what you would expect for them to sound. Jesus sits down, his disciples come to him, he's about to teach them about how they're going to radically make the world different, Uh, and he says these sorts of things about being poor in spirit, being meek, being a mourner. Uh, It's not really what we would expect someone to say about being the good life, being, as later he would talk about, being the salt and light. You wouldn't think that to be salt and light would be poor in spirit. In fact, Uh, I think these other Beatitudes, which I wrote, might seem more like what we would expect. Something like this, Blessed are the put-together and the rich, for they can build their own brand, their own house, their own family, their enterprise, their own kingdom. Or blessed are the independent, who don't need others, for they can make things right for themselves by themselves. Or blessed are the smart decision makers, for they will be winners. Win so much you'll be tired of winning. (laughs) Blessed are those who do the right thing, for they will make the world better. These other Beatitudes. Uh, I think, honestly, if any of our children were to grow up and embody that, you know, make good decisions, be good problem solvers... Uh, be independent, like that seems to be the goal, right? We would all be really excited, probably. Uh, we would be, you know, the envy of all the other parents. Wow, your child grew up and left the house and is independent and well-adjusted. Like, you must be a blessed parent. Or maybe you're also someone who you read those Beatitudes and you're like, yeah, that's what my parents expected of me. And I'm somewhere between meeting that expectation or failing at it. I know that's often what some people experience on Mother's Day, is the weight of unmet expectations. 
we would think that these other Beatitudes are the, the ones we're supposed to be. If you can be those things, uh, you can create a world that you want. You won't need anything. Uh, you could fix any problem. Those other Beatitudes make sense. Those are actually the ones that I think we learn all the time. Uh, it's even the way we learn about being the best kind of church or the best kind of, of Christian. You know, the, the best Christians are the ones that are put together. You know, like the most mature are the ones who have their lives figured out. And they can then go help other people because they don't need anything. They've got their lives in good order. Or we might think the most solid Christians, you know, the, the truly that get it. They're the ones who can say the truth that needs to be said uh, and without wavering, without being consumed with what other people might say or might, how they might feel about it. We can just say it, move on. Who are so independent, so isolated, they don't have to worry about how their friendships might be harmed. Those are the really, they're the ones that really get it. Or the best leaders, the leaders that the church should have, are the ones who always make good decisions. Uh, that's what my grandmother taught me, you know, happy Mother's Day to her. Uh, she was always say, just make good decisions, Brad. She repeated it to me way more than any of my other uh, fellow cousins. And I think probably for some good reason, you know, like make good decisions. You're running around the property naked, so make good decisions with your life. But those are the leaders that we need, right? The ones that always make the right good decision. The best churches are the ones that have the most influence, the most people in them, the most uh, uh, influential in the highest levels of power. Those are the really, like, important churches. If we just had more important churches, then we'd be good. I think we actually uh, live in sort of a, an amazing uh, season of history in America where you have a whole generation of people that have kind of read those Beatitudes and said, if that's the way that the church is supposed to be, the put together, the rich, the mature, like the the isolated, the, the powerful. We have a whole generation of people that looks to those and say, yeah, I don't think that's what it means to be a Christian. It's kind of, kind of exciting. You know? It's a whole swath of people that says, if that's the church, then I don't, then I don't want that. If that's what it means to be a Christian, then that's, that's hollow. And I even bristle at it. it. It seems to fall flat, which I think is, is a pretty true assessment. You know, if, if the put-together person, the one who's got their life in order, comes to you and says, hey, what you need is, all you need is grace. Grace is what you need. I don't need any, but you definitely do. It falls flat. Or if the, the really great problem solvers who don't find anything that comes into their life that they cannot fix themselves, they come to you and they say, Jesus is the answer we've all been looking for. Well, all that you've been looking for, I've fixed it myself. It's kind of an empty message, isn't it? 
Or when the proud come to you and say, here's the truth about sex or politics or war or justice, but I don't have any compassion for that. It feels pretty empty. Or as the Apostle Paul said, you know, I could have the rhetoric of an angel, but if I don't have love, I'm just noise. And so there's a whole you know, generation of people that says, well, the church is just noise because of these things. We also live, though, in a very apathetic moment where people uh, look at that and they say, I don't want to be that kind of Christian, so I'm not going to be any kind of Christian. And we allow the, the loudest, most dysfunctional voices to dictate to us what a Christian is. Uh, we don't uh, allow the truth about what Jesus says for us to be. We just allow the most misguided thing from our past about what the church is, what a Christian is. That tells us what the truth is. We don't listen to the way of Jesus and who he is. Uh, too often we're afraid, like so afraid, of being like someone else, some picture that you have from your past, that we don't actually embody who we are. We're so knowledgeable about what not to do, how not to be. It's amazing. I think uh, uh, we could write, and people are trying, to write you know, volumes and volumes and volumes about what the church should not be doing, and we spend so much time describing that that we don't actually live and be who we are. But what Jesus is saying here over and over again is he's saying, this is who you actually are. And this is who I came for. These are what my disciples are like. So maybe I, you know, we should become maybe just a little bit more eager to see not what, you know, our culture says is a good, important person, or, or even uh, more eager to, to look to Jesus to see what is, in, a, in fact, a blessed, full, abundant, powerful life. Uh, and instead of trying to be afraid of, of being like those people that we don't do anything, maybe we should become more concerned with who Jesus looks to us and says who we are. The truth is just the truth. And it actually produces good life from the mouth of Jesus. And so I just want to quickly, uh, well, I shouldn't have made that promise, but I'll just want to look at three of these. These first three Beatitudes. The first one, he opens his mouth and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, uh, the moral disasters. Blessed are the disasters. The emotional wrecks. The out of sorts. The, the untethered. The opposite of put together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Old Testament uh, describes the poor often and regularly the poor in the Old Testament is the one who's afflicted and unable to help or save themselves. To be poor in the Old Testament view of the world is to be someone who is in a situation where they cannot help themselves out of it. They're in a pit and they can't climb out. 
They're in debt that they cannot pay. They're, they're in a struggle and a strife that they simply cannot, by their own strength or their own power, get out of it. That is the poor in spirit. Someone who needs someone to rescue them. To be poor in the Bible is to be utterly dependent. To be completely in need. The poor in spirit are those who are dependent and in need of someone else to rescue and save them. They're the spiritually dead, abused, forgotten. They are the wrecks, the out of sorts. And Jesus looks to them and he says, Blessed. Blessed are them, the, the complete shipwreck. Jesus says, you, if that's who you are, if you, if you go to Jesus and you say, I am of complete need, he says, that's so good. You can even imagine Jesus getting so, so giddy and so excited These people are poor in spirit. They need someone to rescue them. Good news. The kingdom of God came for you. The kingdom of God is not this wonderful gate that is opened up for all the really successful and uh, brilliant and wise people. The, The gates of heaven are open. The kingdom of God comes to us, the poor, the dependent, Those who even spiritually, as Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You can't even walk. You can't even breathe. And the kingdom of God, Jesus says, comes to you. And if that's who you are, you're blessed. Or earlier, uh, or in a different gospel, Jesus is eating and hanging out with sinners, as he often did. And some people came up who didn't consider themselves sinners. And they said, what are you doing? Eating with all of these Poor in spirit. And Jesus says, I came for the sick, the dying, the sinner. Jesus says, you're so blessed. You, the poor in spirit, you're so blessed. Why? Because Jesus is even saying it with his own mouth. God, the kingdom of heaven, is on earth looking to you, speaking to you, opening up his mouth, the kingdom of God has come for you. The outcast, the down and out, the untethered emotional wreck. You are, we are, the poor in spirit. And even if we had, uh, I think it can be kind of easy, especially even in this room, uh, to be like, yeah, we're poor in spirit. You know, like, these chairs are kind of wonky. Some of you should get tetanus shots if you're sitting in the back, though Trip does a good job filtering out the rusty ones. Uh, in this city, you can, like, look at your bank account and how much money goes to your housing, and you're just like, well, yeah, of course, I'm, like, poor in spirit. 
But actually, I think that it's quite easy to feel, uh, you know, self-entitled and rich. I remember uh, several years ago, we moved to Portland. This is, the Portland stories are fading away, but they're still around. Uh, we moved, and I thought, oh, like, we're such good people. Like, we care, we open up our house to all these people. Before we came to this neighborhood, no one had a 4th of July party. Now they have a 4th of July party. Uh, before we got here, there were weeds in our garden, and now it's beautiful, and there's vegetables, and we're sharing them with all of these people. Uh, you know, we're educated, wise, smart, full of the spirit. Uh, these people are so, they're so lucky. The kingdom of God has come because we rented this house. And then uh, something happened. Uh, you know, we make some bad decisions. We uh, don't care for one another. We don't love each other. We lose track of who Jesus actually is. We uh, fall into like just the consistent habit of, of not loving even just one another in our own house, much less anyone else. And it, it all sort of culminates to this point for, for us, we just are. Uh, the bankrupt, the emotionally, spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing left to give. All that we're giving is just on the, the credit card. Which leads to, as I've shared before, interventions and counseling and all of these different things. But I can remember thinking, well, that's it. We failed. The kingdom cannot come anymore to this street. But then as we came home weekly and regularly from our counseling appointments, you know, teary-eyed, but trying to look brave and strong as a good Christian should, our neighbors began to ask, where are you going every Tuesday? Why are you sad? Oh, well, we're in counseling. I'm kind of a wreck. I don't even know, you know, I'm supposed to love you and I don't, and I'm supposed to love my wife and I don't, and it's all just really terrible. I'm sorry. And they're like, oh, I thought you had, you know, a disease. But wait, you're a broken person? Honestly and truly, like the kingdom of God did not come through us, uh, but was present already. But when we began to truly see some sort of change and a deepening of relationships and a hearing of the gospel was when we were actually poor in spirit. I wonder what it would look like in our world today if that's who we were known for. The people who proclaim the gospel and live the gospel from this point of, I just very much need Jesus. I just very much. I can't, can't walk, can't stand. I can't do any of this life without Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Martin Luther translated this into a German word that I'm not going to say, but the German word meant bearer of sorrow. Blessed are those who bear sorrows. Blessed are those who, who cozy up with grief, who put uh, the weight and the sadness 
and they embrace it. Blessed are those who don't hide in the sand. Who don't dialogue about brokenness, but actually bear sorrows. Blessed are those who mourn. Who look to the world and look to themselves and say, this is just not right. And there's a way to mourn in which you say, look at all those people out there. I'm so sorry for them. But then there's another way that says, look at our world and how in great need we are. Blessed are those who mourn, who go to their workplaces, who go to their schools, who go into every aspect of life saying, this is just not how it was supposed to be. You know, like, uh, no spoilers, but I did see the Avengers movie, film, uh, the end game. I'm about, to, yeah. Oh, nice. That's what the snap's all about. Yeah. But it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I'm so scared of uh, spoiling something just then that I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Who even, like, look to all of the sadness and say, I'm part of this. I think Jesus also, he's saying, blessed are those who mourn, those who see themselves for who they really are. Something that's kind of out of place uh, right now is to look at your own sin and to be sad about it. To, as the Puritan said, have sorrow for sin. We look at to our own selves, our own lives, and we make it smaller by saying, yes, I just made some mistakes. I fumbled the ball. I tripped. I fell. These are all great euphemisms, right? For sin. For rebelling against the very living God who created you and billions of others that you would worship and magnify who He is And we belittle our trespasses by saying, I just kind of tripped and fell. Jesus says, blessed are those who see their sin and mourn. Those who have become a burden to Jesus. Who when we sing about the cross and whenever we reflect on Good Friday or Easter, we're not imagining, man, this is good news for other people to hear can't wait for my neighbor to hear this, but we simply sit there and say, it was my sin that put him there. Right? Thanks, Jess. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. But Jesus says, even in that morning, he says, you're blessed. Because you'll be comforted. Someone is going to come sit beside you And take the sorrow away. You'll be comforted. You will find a wholeness and a rescue and a saving. Blessed are those who come and see their sin and grieve over it. Because Jesus came, the one speaking these words, came to die for it. Blessed are those who, who like Jesus, go up to the top of the city 
and look out and grieve and weep for the people who don't have a shepherd. We're comforted because the shepherd is, is ours. Jesus is our comforter. He sends the Spirit to be with us, beside us. That's what it means when it says we're, we don't grieve like the rest of the people who say really quickly, man, this world is kind of crazy. You know, we're still shooting people at schools. We're still at war. We're still uh, hating and violent towards one another. Still punching each other's cars. As bizarre as that is. Ask Trip his story. It's funny. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn and grieve over the lostness of a city, of a place, who bear the burdens. That if even in this cultural moment... That's even how we embodied it with one another. You know, like there's a community of people who mourn and carry and care about the sorrows of our world. Blessed are those who are acquainted with grief. I think, too, uh, the reality of speaking the truth from a place of mourning. I think a lot of times, in my own life even, I I get very frustrated that people just won't hear the truth and know the truth and, you know, obey it and live by it. But I also wonder what happens when we come to people actually bearing the weight and the grief of what we're calling them into. Calling them to lay aside their identity. Calling them to lay aside for many, their loved ones. I don't know if you can speak truth in love without speaking truth and sorrow. Empathy. Mourning their pain. Even if it's self-inflicted. And I just want to say, too, that empathy or mourning is not the opposite of truth. It's like, well, you can be empathetic with someone and where they are, or you can tell them the truth, you know? But it's actually both. Throughout Jesus' life, he models a life where he sees, he touches, he's concerned about, and he also calls people into who they really are. And it can be as simple as mourning the death of a friend's cat, which is something that's happened to me. Like on the playground at school, a father of one of Nora's friends is there talking about their cat that they've had their entire family life who's died. And I, uh, you know, broke social rules and put my arm around him and said, that is really terrible. And I'm really sorry. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then later asking him again, how are you doing grieving your cat? And I, I don't like cats. Uh, like, that's not a thing that I enjoy. Uh, though, they do eat mice and spiders. But anyway, this is who Jesus calls us to be. People who have been comforted. People who mourn. You're blessed. And then he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek means to be gentle or humble 
or courteous. It means what we think it means to be meek. It means someone who comes and says, I am not the greatest. Or humility simply meaning I know who I actually am. You know, like, like the meekness is not to say, you know, I'm pretty great, but let me like lower it down a few notches so we can relate. You know, like I think that's how I was raised to be humble. You know, uh, you're a Watson. You're awesome. You're incredible. Make sure you give other people a chance to talk or whatever. Uh, give other people a chance to look smart or whatever it might be. Uh, you, because you're a Watson. And so you have lots of privileges. Make sure you don't use them all on people. Like that's, that really is what humility was. Uh, you know, it's polite to say, you know, yeah, I know I, I won this award, but there were a lot of other people who wanted to win it and didn't. Uh, that's what humility is, right? Uh, you kind of take who you think you are and you publicly lower it down a bit. Um, or I can remember, you know, real humility was like uh, I was leading this campus ministry and I was like the speaker person and I thought, you know, to be really humble, I'm going to wash the toilets every week to show these people I'm really humble. Uh, even though this task, because obviously this task is completely beneath me, but I'm going to do it anyway because it says so in some leadership book somewhere. Leaders eat last or whatever it might be. But what Jesus is talking about is not this sort of downgrading of who you think you are publicly. Humility in the scriptures is actually just understanding who you actually are. You are a person Created, not of your own accord, but futile and, and simply easy to kill and destroy. Our bodies are weak. You look at all the other creatures, and then you look at us, and you're like, how, how are there so many of us? Like, these things are just walking time bombs, right? We're a person not, not created to, to ascend to all of these statues, but we're just made under the very presence of God. Like God got down into dirt and made us. That's what the great Catholic thing of dust to dust, ashes to ashes is so powerful because we remember and we recognize, oh wait, I am just dust. Dust created under God to glorify and to worship God. And any sort of worship or utterance about who he is is to recognize who we're not. It's not downgrading who we are, but actually recognizing who we are. Uh, Martin Luther also about the Beatitudes described that this is not a list of things that we can achieve or accomplish or just you know bear down and get disciplined about. But he said, this is just a list of things that everyone needs the gospel and the grace and the power of God to, to emulate just a little bit. Like for us to be any of these things, to even have any form of blessing at all, would be a complete, powerful manifestation 
of God himself. That's who we are. And it produces this courteous, gentle patience. It means that we don't uh, get to live this wonderful life where we say, look how awesome our community is. You know, like, I am part of this beautiful missional community, and we're so good. But we actually say, no, we are the, the morally bankrupt, the spiritually impoverished. We're the mourners, the grievers, the sinners. Look at, look at how wonderful Jesus is. When people come to us to, to describe, you know, like, man, your, your community's so good, it's so awesome, you guys make food for each other and meal trains, and, you know, it's amazing the apps that they've created just for the church to be the church. And we could say, hey, like, we're so awesome, aren't we? We do always take care of people's needs. Or do we just say, this is nothing compared to the infinite glory of God and His saving power for us? Jesus says to the meek, he says, you shall inherit the earth. You're blessed. You will inherit the earth. You will have everything and you will have nothing. As we talked about last week, the, the great paradox of being a disciple or a follower of Jesus is that to come in, you say, I have nothing. The call to come and follow Jesus is a call to come and die. Say, no more of my identity or my things or my stuff. It's all God's. I'm dying to behold Jesus. But then as that dying, then we are raised to this miraculous life where the Spirit of God actually dwells in us and comforts us in every sorrow. Where we don't live in uh, the kingdom of America or, what, or Los Angeles, but we live in this kingdom of God where he gets everything that he ever wanted from this world. And that we inherit the earth, the meek, the humble. We inherit a new creation. Just talking about this future reality where the earth is no longer under the weight or the pressure, or the curse of sin, but creation itself is simply alive, like bursting with unhindered life. That's your inheritance. Like that's, that's what you get. An inheritance is such a powerful word. Uh, I've inherited a few things in my life already, uh, besides, you know, my genetics, I guess. Uh, I've inherited a really awesome leather jacket that I don't get to wear very much because uh, it's not very in style, but it's awesome. So when that comes back, you'll see it often. Uh, and in, my, in that leather jacket, there's all these candies that my grandfather used to put, you know, like grandfather candy, grandfather level, like peppermints. And now the peppermints are super, like, mushy. Like, uh, because I, I just, I, I can't take them out, you know? It's like, I'm not going to throw these away. But you know how peppermints get, like, as they decompose and they age, they get, like, am I the only one that's experienced old peppermints? <laughs> Everyone do this experiment, take a peppermint, put it in a jacket for, like, 30 years. Uh, and then 30 years from now, you'll understand this illustration. 
but it's, this jacket's amazing, and inside, and I, and I think I treasure the peppermints more than anything else, because it's like, that's, my grandfather was a super generous person. Uh, he gave out little 10-cent candies, but he also gave out, like, $10,000 checks. Like, that's the kind of person he was. Uh, but the, the inheritance is fading. It's diminishing. Uh, one day, that jacket will just be in a dump somewhere uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> That's what got you guys, not my grandfather dying. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. Um, Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you're getting and doing in this life. It doesn't matter how much you're going to gain, how much you're going to lose. The inheritance that you have is this bustling new creation where God dwells with you. You and a host of other people, of every kind of person, of every generation, you and a world and an earth without sin or its curse, just Jesus at the center, not even needing a, a son anymore to sort of give us energy or light or make the world work, but simply God and his glory in the center of it. That inheritance doesn't fade. That's what you will get forever. You have nothing in this life, and you have everything. That is the gift of Jesus. John Stott writes this. Uh, He says, Jesus is not making an objective judgment about these people, the disciples. He's not declaring what they may feel like, but what God thinks of them and who on that account they are. They are blessed. This isn't a a judgment call that Jesus is making about us. You look kind of blessed. He's not even declaring, hey, I want you to feel blessed. This, this Greek word can also just mean happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. I think it's better translated blessed, but he's not, Jesus isn't just saying, be happy in your circumstances. No, what God is doing here is he's saying, this is what I think of you. And this is who you are because I think of you that way. You are blessed to even hear these words. Lastly, all of these phrases are collective, not individualistic. The the poor is a plural descriptor. Those who mourn is plural. Those who are meek and all the others as well, so none of the other future preachers get to describe this. I'm stealing it. They're all plural. They're collective. He's describing them as a group. The disciples. This is who they are. Not just who you are. This is who we are as a church. This is how we live together. This is how you're even conceived and called into the kingdom of God is together into poor in spirit, together into meekness, together into mourning, together blessed. 
collectively blessed by the power and the presence of God. And so I, I just wonder what kind of thing God desires to do with us as collectively the dependent. The ones who are just, we just need God for everything. Or the mourners. Like, we just see the sin of this world and we grieve for it. The, the humble, the gentle, the courteous, who say we are not incredible or awesome, but Jesus is. Or even I wonder what, what God does with a church that believes that they're blessed, like believes that there's nothing that can be taken away from us. A church that believes that the resurrection from the dead ensures for us a full, abundant life forever. We could die tomorrow, but it will never take away the infinite glory that we get to receive. Like that. What if the church Amen. believed in the resurrection and the blessing of Jesus? Amen. I wonder what fears would sort of fade away or concerns. I wonder what kind of gentleness it would also produce. What kind of gracious boldness would come from a church that said, we've received abundant, full life. Nothing can be taken away. How do you live? To have the kingdom is to be poor and rich. It's to have nothing. It's to have everything. You have been raised from the dead. The church is God's like, ambassador into this world of come be poor in spirit with me. I wonder too how if we believed in all of these things, how much more we'd be okay with being a wreck to one another. How much more we'd be okay sharing our sin with one another, knowing it'd be greeted with mourning first and a bearing of burdens, the burden of sin towards the cross or the humility that would come from just being, people being able to say very graciously and gently, gently, like, I'm not okay and I don't know if I have the power to do any of this stuff. And the confidence that would come if we said to one another, but you're blessed you have the kingdom of God. This is who we are. When Jesus says, come and follow, this is how we answer it. This is how we embody it. This is how we live. And I'm very confident a church like this is like a really incredible glass of water to the thirsty world around us. This is good news in this city. It's also very distinct news uh, it's very distinct news to not be trying to build ourselves up, but instead to point to a different hero altogether. What power there is in the blessing of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your words. Uh, the, the power that it is that 
We get to sit underneath your teaching thousands of years later and that your spirit causes us to hear it and to know it. Jesus, we thank you for your word. I pray for us. I pray for myself. That we would become poor in spirit. That we would uh, behold that identity as mourners. That we would be those who are meek. Jesus, I pray too, though, that we would see the, just the infinite power of the beginning and end of each phrase. That we are blessed by you. That you've said it of us, and it's true. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.